Hi, this is co-host Patrick Baird. I'd like to tell you about my new military science fiction novel, The Nowhere Navy. Decorated officer Frank Ortega reaches his final duty station. An aging Navy Corvette, the ISS Persistent, stationed in a solar system on the furthest edge of colonized space. Located light years from the war front against the mysterious enhancers, the Persistent is crewed by a motley collection of fleet rejects and raw recruits. Life aboard the ship remains slack and unmilitary until they receive a shocking signal. Most of the rest of the fleet was destroyed in a major battle. The Persistent is left alone to guard its solar system against the inevitable invasion they have no chance of stopping. The Nowhere Navy is available on Amazon.com in both Kindle and paperback formats. Thank you. Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 38 of Unknown Orbits, A Canticle for Leibowitz by Walter M. Miller Jr. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitzey. Today's story is a very famous and well-known story, A Canticle for Leibowitz. It tells the story of a band of monks who a thousand years after a nuclear apocalypse are seeking to try to retrieve and curate knowledge from previous civilization. In particular, they follow Isaac Leibowitz, who was a scientist back in the pre-apocalyptic days, and they are trying to get him canonized as a saint. And the book begins when a young monk discovers a hidden trove of documents from Leibowitz in a bunker. It's a multi-part book, and the first part is about this young monk trying to present this information to his superiors, being disbelieved, and to make things worse, before he discovers this bunker, he runs across a strange old man wandering in the desert, and he says some strange things, and at some point, the monks begin to think this might be Leibowitz himself as a supernatural figure. So there's a great deal of back and forth. The first part of the book is all about this process of canonization, of examining the evidence, and eventually he does become a saint. So after that part of the book, then we jump ahead to where civilization is beginning to come back together. The monks have moved on from preserving knowledge and trying to find artifacts to actually studying the writings and the works of Leibowitz to try to redevelop the technologies from the previous era. It would be fair to say that the first section is the New Dark Ages and the second section is the New Enlightenment. Yes, that's a perfect description of it, I think. And then the last part of the book is we fast forward to where they've actually developed nuclear weapons. And of course, History repeats itself, and the world winds up getting destroyed all over again. As I said, it was a very popular book. It was a big mainstream success, published initially in 1960. Both Steve and I read this book when we were in high school. I didn't really remember it very well, 
So I reread it recently, and I remember I did enjoy it back in high school, and I think the reason that I liked it back in high school is because it had cannibalistic mutants in it, or those elements to it. But when I tried to reread it recently, it just didn't really grab me. I just felt like there was not a consistent narrative thread throughout the whole book that pulled me along. The whole first part, where it's basically church politics, did not engage me. I'm not a particularly religious person, so I think that may have had something to do with it. I'm guessing that people who were more religious or maybe people who were raised Catholic might have found this more appealing to them in some way. It just didn't grab me. I've always enjoyed Christian mythology in movies and in books. We did get a suggestion from a listener to do an episode on religious themes in science fiction. Which there are. When you put that to me, I did find some examples. So that will be a future episode that we're going to focus on religious themes in science fiction. I did find several anthologies on that topic as well. Oh, really? Okay, well, that'll be in a future episode. So I don't know. I mean, it's possible that I just wasn't reading it at the right point in time. Maybe if I was reading it in a more leisurely fashion, if I was, you know, the classic summer read, you know, where you just want to kick back and get into a book. A mood book? Yeah, yeah. You know, a great example of that was I saw the movie Taipei in the theater. I read the book. I was a James Clavell fan. I read Shogun and Taipei. I won tickets. And me and my friend were the only two people in the theater. Not surprising. And yet, I was in the perfect mood for it, and I enjoyed all 15 hours of it. (laughs) It was not 15 hours. Well, three, two, (laughs) I... seemed like 15 hours? Very long. Yeah, that was a bomb. That movie was a bomb, and I, I was disappointed because, like I said, I was a James Clavell fan, but... That was kind of a similar book. It was a rise and fall. It was It was all about the founding and creation of Hong Kong. So it had a similar sort of a framework to it that this story did. So this is a fix-up novel of three stories originally published in Fantasy and Science Fiction magazine. The story was inspired by his experience as a bomber crew member during World War II. They were involved in the attack on Monte Cassino. Monte Cassino was an Italian monastery built on top of a hill, and it was a beautiful historic monastery filled with all kinds of important artworks and and documents. And unfortunately, the German army occupied the monastery. And being on top of a hill, it was a very strategic position. And a lot of men died on the ground trying to take Monte Cassino. And finally, the Allied command decided that they had no choice. They had to bomb it. And they bombed it to oblivion. So that was, I'm sure that was a very heartbreaking and difficult thing for him to witness. That's where the genesis of the story came from. This was the only novel that Walter Miller Jr. published during his lifetime. There was a sequel to Canical Felibwitz that was published posthumously. I don't know if you read that or not. I have. It's not a good sequel. It suffers from a lot of sequel problems. Now, the original... Leibowitz had a definitive end for the planet and possibly humanity. Yeah, you can't beat ending those book with a nuclear holocaust. So how do you do a sequel without repeating it? You kind of can't. So he chose to 
place the sequel story between the second and third parts of the first book. Oh, okay. But what really ruined it is he took the character who does call himself Lazarus a few times, taking that character and having him go on an adventure in between these two segments, and it does not do the character justice at all. It's not a great story. It was the result of Walter Miller Jr. trying to write a sequel for decades and ending up with hundreds and hundreds of pages of vaguely related material, which Terry Bisson, I believe by request of Walter Miller's widow, he went through all of this huge pile of material and came up with the book. And I still say it's not a good book. I can understand the impulse to write a sequel. It was an enormously successful book. And there must have been pressure on him to write a sequel. But looking at the structure of the story, which literally goes from nuclear apocalypse to nuclear apocalypse, it may be one of those stories that you probably shouldn't even try to write a sequel to. Yeah. Unfortunately. So like we've said repeatedly, it was highly acclaimed. It was a winner for Best Novel, the Hugo Awards, 1961. It had a lot of mainstream success outside of the science fiction genre. And maybe you can um, give me a little bit more reasoning for why you like this story so much. Maybe it'll help me to try to have a little more insight on it where I, I might have missed something. I've been trying really hard to narrow down what about the book draws me in. I've done book repair and preservation, and I've worked in libraries. Maybe that's one reason. Whatever it is, it is an element that goes across all three sections. So the best I can say is that there's something about the mythological aspects of the story that keep me engaged with it. And that's the problem for me, is it didn't draw me in. And I can't put my finger on it other than to say that I thought it lacked a strong central narrative thread. problem with doing these time jump stories where you're jumping across hundreds of years is that, we, in this case, they kill off the main character halfway through the book. So now you've got to switch to a whole new set of characters. I will say that that young friar that discovers the Leibowitz papers is an interesting character. And I think that one part of the book I did like, but they killed him halfway through the book. So where do you go from there? Now you're shifting to something completely different. And that shift, I think, was part of the problem for me too, is that whatever minimal interest I had with the story of this kid was cut off. And now I have to jump over to these new set of characters. And to me, they were less interesting. And it was all about politics and things like that. And I just, I don't know, I just the narrative thread for me was, was lacking. Each section was so self-contained that this is more like looking at slices of civilization coming back. Yeah, and that's the overall arcing story is how civilization rebuilds itself but then repeats the same mistakes at the end. I think back to a recent book that we did, Cities in Flight by James Blish. That was episode 34. That's also a fix-up novel. It had four books contained within the entire work. And the one thing that they did is the first book was something completely separate from the rest of the books. And it was an interesting story in and of itself. But then they introduced several characters in the second book. Some of them carry over all the way to the end of the next three books. To me, if you're going to do a epic story like this, you've got to find a way to carry characters over as much as you can. 
where there were some threads and connections between the sections. We have in the third section, Brother Francis, at that point he's the venerable Francis's remains, get blown out of the crypt, so we see them kind of a wrap around back to that. Right. But having his bones there physically is no substitute for the character itself. Cities in Flight, you've got the city of New York. The last three parts of Cities in Flight is takes place in the city of New York, floating through space. So the character of the city itself is a linking thread. Just like in this one, in Cities in Flight, you're jumping around in time and place and different things are happening. But you've got some connecting thread with the city of New York itself, and then one of the main characters is in all three of those books. But I could be wrong, because I know a lot of people love this book, and perhaps I just read it at the wrong time. There are connections between them. It's almost more philosophical. I can't put it into great words, but I think another reason why I like this book is that I've worked in libraries for a number of years and was very often part of the repair and preservation process in the libraries. I think it's a good book. So I just wonder if having a lack of narrative thread and having a difficulty jumping from book to book within a fix-up, if that's an inherent problem with doing fix-up books. Well, the thing is, is how is it created in the first place? There are some that I'm sure were intentionally written as part one, two, and three. But then you have the accidental fix-up novel where the individual stories were just intended as individual stories. And as the writer explored this topic, he ended up with something of a thread going through them. And a great example of that is Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury. Ah. Now, when I read Martian Chronicles, it read like an anthology. It didn't read like a novel. It didn't read like a book-length piece of fiction. It read like an anthology. All of the stories were linked together. They followed the history of man's conquest of the planet Mars. So it had that central unifying thread. And he was fairly consistent, at least when he went back and rewrote them, in presenting the history of Mars and Mars itself and what was happening with the human race consistently throughout the stories. But that's a different kind of fix-up, I think, where you're basically just anthologizing a bunch of related stories in a unified world. I hadn't known he rewrote them for the anthology. I don't know whether he or his editor did. I'm sure that that was the case. I didn't read any of the individual stories previously that I recall. The tone was a little bit different in some of the stories. I'm thinking of linking the stories. A little touch here, a little touch there would do a lot. Yeah, I'm sure that's what they did. So that's our take on Canical for Leibowitz. For a secondary discussion... May I bring up one last aspect of this particular book? Sure. It has been made into a radio adaptation at least twice, maybe three times. The BBC did it. They did it way too short. The definitive radio adaptation is NPR did a 15-part performance of this novel. It happens to be available on the Internet Archive, and I will include a link. It is well worth a listen. You mean it is for the time being, available on the Internet Archive pending an important court case. I forgot about that court case. That might cause us some problems in the future. So if you want this, folks, get out there and get it now, just in case. 
All right, so for our secondary discussion today, as I said, both Steve and I read Canical Fleevers back in our high school days. I don't know about you, Steve, but it was part of assigned or recommended reading for me. I took a class on science fiction in high school, and it was one of the options I had to read. There was other fairly famous works of science fiction that were probably already also on that list. And so what I did is I went back and I dug up a couple of recommended reading lists for high school students from back in the 1970s. And I pulled off from those lists some science fiction works. And I'm just going to run down the list here, and then we can come back and comment on the individual stories. But the list that I came up with, and this is not a complete list, but it's a representative list, I think, of the type of science fiction novels that high school students would have been reading back in the 1970s. We start off with Flowers for Algernon. That's the story about the mentally challenged man who is given a formula that restores his intelligence, and he becomes super intelligent, but then sadly the formula fails and he goes back to his previous state. Brave New World and 1984, the two different ends of dystopian literature. Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. Stranger in a Strange Land by Heinlein, which I thought was an odd choice because doesn't that have some sex in it? I never read it. I haven't either. And then the classic Animal Farm, which I read in high school, Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut, and then Alas Babylon, another post-nuclear apocalyptic tale. Taking place in Fort Lauderdale, which I always think is funny, because this was long before Fort Lauderdale became a thing. Really? I don't think I read Alas Babylon, so I'm not familiar with that particular one. Of the stories on the list, I would put Alas Babylon high up. It's very realistic. It's centered on one area surviving, so it's, should I say the C word, it's a cozy story. Okay. A cozy uh, post-nuclear apocalypse story. But aren't they all? That's what the build-a-shelter fantasy is all about. It's a fort, except it's underground. You know that, you're right. That's a really great point, that the bunker-building story is basically an extension of the childhood building a fort, which I know both you and I engaged in. It seems like I was always building a fort when I was a kid. And then the neighboring kids would come over, knock down our fort in the middle of the night, and then we'd have to rebuild it. And then we have to go attack their fort. And that would occupy an entire summer. You know, (laughs) the fort wars. That was great. Wonderful times. So one of the things that links all of these stories together is that they were all very popular. They were all had a certain degree of mainstream success. And all of them were adapted into either films or television shows. They had very wide popularity in popular culture. That made them obvious choices to some degree for high school reading. And of course, the science fiction novels were alongside Huckleberry Finn and To Kill a Mockingbird and any number of classic pieces of literature of the 20th century, at least. So to contrast... I went and I also looked up current high school reading lists to see whether things had changed, how they had changed, and things have, to some degree, changed. There are a couple of books that are still on reading lists, Slaughterhouse-Five, Brave New World 1984, but many of those other classics, classics from our youth, are typically not included on a public high school reading list anymore. And one of the things I found when I looked at reading lists was there was an interesting 
spectrum of reading lists. So if you were looking at the reading list for a private school that might have had, let's say, a conservative or a religious slant to it, you would see the Flowers for Algernon and Animal Farm and Alas Babylon. So you would see the classics would still be on those reading lists. And also To Kill a Mockingbird and Huckleberry Finn, two books which have been attacked numerous times and even up to this day are still under attack by activist groups and parent groups and both sides of a political spectrum. So you don't see them on the public schools list as well. And the public school lists are more likely to include more modern themes like sexual and gender identity, social issues, climate change. So you see a lot more of, I guess, what you could call politically correct books and the modern public schools. But with the private schools, they tend to have what we call the old classics. I see your argument here, but I see it a different way. I see the private schools as being moneyed people. They want their kids' experience in school to be the same as their own from 30 or 40 years previously. The public schools are looking more towards more modern fiction because things move on. I mean, what I'm getting down to is, is the question, how long is a classic a classic? How long is a classic relevant? Yeah, I'm sure there's stuff that my parents read in school that I couldn't stand to read. Creaky old stuff from Victorian era. My parents, though it was in college, they had to do a lot of reading of the literal classics, like Greek and, and Roman classics. Yeah, there, there you go. They were not teaching much in the way of classics when I was in high school. I did read the Odyssey at one point, but yeah, there was probably a much higher level of content of the classic classics back in our parents' day, for sure. So with modern reading lists, they do include some newer science fiction like Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. That's also known as the Blade Runner novel. Neuromancer by William Gibson, which is an important cyberpunk book. Was William Gibson the one who did what is purported to be the first cyberpunk? Well, that's outside of our purview. That's beyond our, hmm. our golden age of science fiction. And I have not read any of William Gibson's work, so I can't really answer that. But then I also saw stuff like the Divergent series, which is a young adult science fiction series. So there's quite a few young adult type books on modern reading lists. Now, I'm just going to say right out, I'm not a big fan of a lot of young adult fiction, but, you know, I understand the popularity of it. And if kids are reading, I'm not going to complain what they're reading about. But one of the most interesting things I ran across, this is just a little bit of a diversion, was there was one private school in particular that was obviously a very upper class private school for the elite of the elite, their children. And literally half the books or more on their reading list were self-help motivational books, which I was appalled by it. I put myself in the shoe of some 16-year-old kid whose parents are probably telling him, well, if you don't get into Harvard, your life is over. And he goes to school and he has to read these motivational books that tell him you can take charge of the world and you can succeed and you can overcome everything. And I'm just thinking, what a dreadful, depressing life for a kid to have to be put through that. 
That was the one little diversion that I took when I was looking at reading lists that just appalled me. But that also brings up another issue with reading lists is that in recent decades, a lot of educators have moved away from fiction on reading lists, and they're pushing more nonfiction to kids, with the idea being that fiction does not serve very great purpose in learning, that kids need to learn how to read for comprehension. They need to learn for being able to analyze, because that's a skill that's more valuable in their future career, reading technical information and analyzing it and absorbing it. And allegedly, fiction doesn't really help in that way. Never mind that fiction can help teach morals and important personal characteristics to kids, that it can elevate children and elevate their thinking and change their view of the world. That's not as important anymore as let's get those kids programmed to be able to function as nice, effective workers in the workplace. Turning schools more into a tech school, which I think was an old complaint of colleges a couple decades ago. Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. What's the fun in that? Yeah, you have to go to college, waste a couple of years doing whatever you feel like doing, and then find what you're going to be doing for the rest of your life. Yeah, and I have to say, unfortunately, I fit that pattern where I thought I was going to do one thing when I started college, and then halfway through college, I decided to do something else, and I tried doing that, and then I wound up doing something completely different altogether. I'm not trying to brag or anything, but I have two degrees, and the job I'm working now is based or comes out of some stuff I did on the side in the 1980s. That was kind of the case with me, too, is that we were both one of the school papers, and we both were involved in doing the uh, actual layout and production of the newspaper, and we used desktop publishing software to do that. And in both of our cases, that skill of being able to do what was called desktop publishing back in the day landed us jobs. Yeah. We were both, at one point, for the same company. I actually took your place. You left, and I took your job after you left. We were typesetters for a printing company. Yeah, I learned a lot at that job, especially about paste-up. Which is not a skill anymore. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't I, you know. Maybe in some corner of the world, people are still manually pasting things up. So to wrap up the whole assigned reading, high school reading list thing, obviously, I'm a big advocate for kids reading stories. And there's some really great stories on these lists, including the newer lists. As long as kids are reading stories, because let's face it, the statistics are not good for carrying reading forward into your adult life for most people. It's like 60 to 70% of adults don't read regularly. Oh. That's kind of sad. The only chance we get as a society to get people to read is when they're still in high school. And you want to hope that some of the stuff that they wind up reading sticks with them and carries through to the rest of their life, whether they remain readers or not. At least they've had the experience of having read some good books in their youth. I'm a big advocate for that. Yeah. Any other thoughts? There's a quote in it that I always go back to. The quote is, To Brother Librarian, whose task in life was the preservation of books, the principal reason for the existence of books was that they might be preserved perpetually. Usage was secondary and to be avoided if it threatened longevity. Okay. I still struggle to say why it appeals to me, but I do like the book. And sometimes that's enough. You don't have to justify why you like a book. 
I know that I did enjoy it way back in the day. I don't know what's changed in me. Who knows, maybe a couple years down the road, I'll try reading it again and maybe I'll come out with a different outcome that time. All right, that's it for episode 38. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.